All right, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Glad that you have joined us. Those of you here as well as those at the campuses and uh, so many people who watch us all over the world via the World Wide Web. We are uh, starting our study of the book of Ezekiel. We've just finished Jeremiah and Lamentations. We just basically talked about Lamentations, that he was lamenting. But uh, we didn't actually read it. It's pretty brutal stuff. But... Uh, This is uh, taking us right up to the time of uh, God's judgment falling on Israel and Jerusalem has been taken uh, captive and is under siege and, you know, all this horrible punishment that's come upon them for their sins. By the time um, they go into captivity, what does it say? Uh, Jeremiah says there's 4,600 people. I go into captivity. Now, there was an earlier group that went in, but we're talking a huge nation here that was down to virtually nothing. Uh, It was major devastation to the Jewish nation, and it was because of their sin. And uh, as I've said many times, it's it's hard to get a real picture because everything we've read to up till now doesn't really give you a real deep picture of some of their sins. Every once in a while, we get a little bit of, of, of a picture of it, but it was quite horrid. Uh, when we get to Ezekiel, he does give us uh, a stronger picture of it and, and the siege that, that happens at Jerusalem and, you know, as in previous sieges, cannibalism and stuff. I mean, this, this is horrible. And uh, uh, the analogy that Ezekiel will use, which we'll see, is, you know, he, he shaves his head and then takes a little few strands of hair and that's kind of the remnant that uh, goes into captivity and that's really all that's left comparatively. By the time they come back out of uh, uh, captivity, and I was trying to flip through this earlier, I couldn't know which one of these guys gives us the number, but it's uh, 70 years later, it's either 10 times that number or, uh, or even more. So they were busy procreating. Thankfully, they were not like Christians in the United States of America who are breeding themselves out of existence because we can't maintain even the birth replacement rate. God forbid we'd be inconvenienced with children. It's going to be an interesting conversation we have someday with God. (sighs) You hear me talk about these things, but it makes me crazy. We are destroying our own culture. As Christians, even as Western culture is destroying itself because... We are such people of the present, we no longer want to consider the past, and we have no concept of the future. That's why most people save no money. Nobody thinks about the future anymore. And uh, and we don't think about it with our own offspring. And hear me when I say there will be hell to pay if we do not stop. Do you know the uh, number one, I I saw this in the Wall Street Journal two weeks ago, the number one name of children born in England, Europe today, in England. The number one name, guess what it is? Mohammed, do the math. Uh, Europe is in a disaster, it's in a mess, it's in a spiral downward. Uh, The only question now at this point, the U.S. has been holding steady only because of immigration that's been coming in. If you take people who are actually supposed to be here, uh, we've dropped dramatically as well. We're headed in a bad, bad way. If Christians, if just people of faith would change the way they think and start valuing children and families we could change this country in 20 years just by sheer numbers but 
Got to have a big screen TV instead. Crazy stuff. I won't get into all. I can speak for an hour just on that because it drives me crazy. But uh, these guys didn't have that problem, thank God. There was another down to a handful of people. And by the time they came back, it was a significant number again because they procreated and were normal people and had children and, and uh, came back and started rebuilding the nation. But uh, so we get to Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, these are the two what I call dramatic prophets. These are the guys who are very dramatic. And, and when you think of the classic picture of an Old Testament prophet, you know, all bearded and hairy and saying the end is near and doing all kinds of strange things as people are going around trying to warn them of God's impending judgment, you're describing Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Those guys were very, very dramatic. And uh, certainly Jeremiah was a dramatic. Ezekiel as dramatic, if not more dramatic. You'd actually argue he's even more dramatic, which we're going to see some of the strange things that uh, he did, which God told him to do, but it's some pretty strange stuff. Now, we start out, Ezekiel, uh, in terms of people who saw visions and some really strange things, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, which is also part of this group that is now taken into captivity, saw some pretty amazing things. Um, uh, Daniel's visions... At least he makes sense out of it. He shows you the vision and then what it meant and, and stuff like that. Ezekiel, he was just seeing all kinds of crazy stuff <laughs> and scary stuff and doesn't really describe or really explain much of any of it because uh, he's not really speaking prophetically off of his vision. It's just he's seeing stuff. We're talking like LSD kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying, which we're about to see here. Now, he wasn't taking LSD. It wasn't drug-induced. It was all induced by the Spirit of God. But wait till you see what this guy saw, which motivated him to do what he did. Most of us, it would have scared us half to death and we'd have gone getting our heads examined. But uh, So check this out. As we get into Ezekiel, this very dramatic prophet who saw incredible visions and stuff, pretty scary stuff, and then was very dramatic in speaking against the sins of the nation. And then in his analogy, the, the final thought before we get into this, setting this up, is he's the only guy, prophet, who uses sexual uh, imagery to make his points. And it's rather graphic. And I will warn you when we get to the real graphic stuff so you can keep the little rugrats out. Uh, but this, this is... <laughs> do you hear it? It's, oh my gosh. Now, what's really interesting to me. Now, he's, he's the most sexually... I mean, to the point of being absolutely gross. I mean, if I were to say what this guy said, boom, you don't throw me out of the church. I mean, wait till you see what he says. It's really gross stuff. Now, you say, well, the Song of Solomon is really very sexual. Well, it's sexual by implication. When we get to Ezekiel, he ain't implying Jack. This is just flat out body parts stuff that he starts throwing around, which is pretty shocking and amazing. Uh, actually, it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And I'll put that in context when we get to it. I still don't understand how the Christian community can be a community so afraid to talk about sex when clearly God had no such problem. And when we get to this part, what's amazing, it's not Ezekiel talking. It is God speaking through him in the first person using the gross sexual analogies. You know, and the church, we go, oh, you might say wiener, we can't, oh, what's going to happen? He'll say wiener in the church, we'll all go to hell, because he said wiener, you know. How Christians, you know, I, I'll, I'll get off on that, and I'll get on that, I promise you, I'll beat that to death when I get to it. But uh, let's start, and uh, at first I was going to rush through a lot of the stuff and get to the real juicy stuff, but I thought, let, 
we, we need to set this up because uh, I want to read this, some of the vision stuff that he had. This is very famous stuff historically, certainly from a biblical historical fact. But even people in history will refer to, uh, you know, the wheel within a wheel and some of these visions that uh, Ezekiel had. So for the sake of your biblical literacy, I want you to read with me um, the vision of Ezekiel. Okay, here we go. In the third... 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River. So he's with one of the, this group of these people that finally made it out, taken into exile into Babylon. He's hanging with some of these guys. So he's hanging by the river. He even has the day that it happens. He says, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now it's interesting because the visions he has of God sound more like the book of Revelation. Which really strange stuff that he describes there. But uh, um, usually people who have visions of God talk about seeing him on a throne and you know more ordered things that we would think about. But here's the, here's the vision that he had. So it was on the fifth of the month. It was on the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. Now, um, this is the last king that I'm aware of, if I'm mistaken, someone pointed out, but uh, of, of that was ever mentioned as a king in Israel. This is the king that was taken now into captivity and uh, they gave him a certain amount of respect as the final king or whatever. But uh, after that, you don't hear of any more kings. They, they were kingless after this, which was a good thing for them. God never wanted them, if you remember, in the beginning to have kings in the first place. They insisted on it because they were stubborn. What a shock. They were stubborn about a lot of things. So this is in the fifth year of the exile of this king. Again, just giving a time frame when all this stuff happened. So the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. They're in Babylonian captivity. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. That's face number one. On the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left side was the face of an ox. And then each one also had the face of an eagle, which I presume would be the back of their heads, seeing how we're out of sight. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. So I guess the implication is, is they're just these creatures just coming and wherever they turn, they're like, you know, they just kept looking forward as they were able to move and maneuver around uh, coming in this vision. Uh, the appearance of the living creatures was like that of burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked into the 
As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. Uh, As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creature faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. (laughs) Some creepy-looking stuff here. So, you know, the first thought is, what does all this mean? No one knows what it means. Other people take guesses at what it means. But he never even ties any analogy to any of it. He's just saying this is what he sees. So he's got these floating angels, and underneath the angels are these big wheels. I don't know if they're actually touching the wheels or not, but they're moving all over the place. And When the living creatures moved, and the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. I have no idea what he's talking about. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. It'd be kind of a cool movie. Spooky, creepy thing to look at here. Special effects to pull this off. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creature moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty. So these are very loud as they're moving about. Like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw uh, that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. I'll bet. <laughs> I'd be going, ah! So he sees all this stuff, and obviously this is, you know, he's seeing God at this point, or a vision of God or something, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Chapter 2. Now he said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet. I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. Just <laughs> Good heavens. Ah! So this flows up like this. And, and I heard the voice speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation. That has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are an obstinate and stubborn, are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and when whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among you. And you'll see this phrase over and over again, whether they listen or fail to listen. And what he's basically telling them is, look, you tell them what I tell you to tell them. What they do with it, don't concern yourself. If they obey it, so be it. If they don't, so be it. I'll deal with it. It's a good 
message for preachers, actually. You know, sometimes we try and help God out with things, and we get frustrated because we say things, and it seems like people don't get it. You know, that's not our job is to uh, uh, make things real to people. That's God's job. We preach, we teach, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that does stuff. And not only for preachers, but even for those of you who share your faith with family and friends. And sometimes you feel like you're just going nowhere. And what can I do? What can I do to me? Well, this is really, quite frankly, nothing you can do. Okay? You share love. You share the truth uh, as opportunities present themselves. And, uh, and it's up to God. And you certainly pray about these things. But you cannot control what other people do. God has done that by design. It's called free will. If God could make people do things, like people often say, how can I make my this or that happen in my life? Or how can I make my husband do this? Or how can I make my wife do that? You know, we'll give you some advice, but quite frankly, you can't make anybody do anything. End of the day. Get over it. Especially some of you control freaks. Try to control everything in your life. And when you can't control something, you just come unglued. Look, you can't control everything in life. You cannot make people do things at the end of the day, unless they're, you know, like 10 years or under, you're going to make them, but even then they won't, they'll do it against their will. <laughs> and you said, a man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. Now you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll on which, which he unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. You know, bad news. He's seeing this thing, bad news. Because he's having this vision. Um, again, a lot of this sounds like the book of Revelations. Wait till we get to that. It'll be woe. Uh, and, and he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Also sounds like the book of Revelations. The angel said, or whatever, that he was supposed to eat it and he ate it. And I don't know, in the, did they actually eat it? I guess they actually ate it because he actually physically talks about eating this. Certainly it's implication of getting the word of God in you. Which, you know, it's just an analogy. If you want to get the word of God in you, tearing a page out of your Bible and eating it, it's not going to do you any good. Okay. So it was great for the analogy, but the analogy, you got to read it and get it in your head and get it into your life because the power of God inside of you is in the words of God inside of you. This is the analogy, but in this vision, he said, Son of man, eat what is before you, eat the scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So in his vision and his whatever altered reality of whatever this he's eating this scroll it tastes good to him he said to me son of man go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them you are not being sent to a people of obscure speech or difficult language but to the house of Israel the analogy here is that these are your people these are people it's like God saying to you look go share the love of God I'm not sending you to China where you don't know the language or the customs or anything else I'm sending you people that you should be able to communicate with all right, Not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. So slam on the house of Israel. He says, but the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. 
But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. Check this out. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone. Harder than flint. I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if that is not where we get the phrase, you are hard-headed. Talking about stubborn people. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. So what he's saying is these are stubborn, mean, nasty people. He says, don't worry, I'm going to make you as hard-headed as they are. And give you the strength. And he says to me, son of man, listen carefully. And take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whether they listen or fail to listen. Again, he keeps saying that over and over again. Then the spirit lifted me up. And I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. The sound of wing of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other. And the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The spirit then lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Abib near the Kebar River which is where he was in the first place. And there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, overwhelmed. <laughs> I'll bet. So, he's at this place, sees this holy stinking cow vision that is like, wow. Even difficult even to comprehend what he is seeing. He's not even trying to comprehend. He's just telling you what he saw as best as he can say it. And he comes back to the Kabar River, and he basically sits there for seven days going... Well, at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Now, this is a very interesting next portion of scripture uh, that uh, you need to be aware of. This is kind of an important thing. Oftentimes, uh, preachers of the past would preach these words that I'm about to read to you at people in the congregation. To put the fear of God in them if they did not share the gospel with other people. Certainly a a fear motivation, but let's read it and I'll explain it. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sins and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Well, that's kind of serious, right? That's kind of scary. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sins, but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, but I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning And you will have saved yourself. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever heard this analogy pointed at people, but oftentimes, back back up 50 years ago, evangelical churches, turn of the century even, back another 100 years ago, they would preach this like hellfire and brimstone from the pulpit, the pastors, and uh, would really motivate people, you better go out and try and win your neighbors to Jesus, because if they go to hell and you didn't warn them, it's going to be on your head. Which is pretty heavy stuff, okay? And, and there's people still to this day who would think in that way. And there's a, a, a degree of truth in that. If you know the truth and you intentionally withhold the truth, especially when you have the opportunity to give the truth, you know, that's a bad thing for you. But 
reality check. Okay? Nowhere else in the Bible, the New Testament certainly doesn't talk in those kinds of terms. Uh, you know, to who much is given, much is required. You have a vision like this, and God's floating you around the room, and he tells you to say something, and you don't say, yeah, no, no, you can worry about it. Okay? Because these guys, they would take very seriously. You know, I, I'm doing all this, I'm revealing myself to you in this incredible way, and if you don't tell them what I tell you to tell them, you will be guilty for their sins. Wow, that, you know, the blood, his blood will be on your hands. Um, I don't think that's the picture of, of the normal Christian experience. Most of us have never had visions and dreams like this. If God, again, floats around the room and starts telling us something, you better pay attention. Now, we should preach the gospel, and we should love people, and we should live lives that would make them want to know about us. And Paul said you should be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you of why you live the way that you live. Okay? That's kind of the normal picture in the New Testament. If you take this at face value, then we should all turn off the lights right now and run out and start beating on every door up and down the streets and tell them they're all going to go to hell if they don't repent. And there's Christians who think like this. I don't know if you've ever been knocked on the door by someone who's telling you you're going to go to hell if you don't repent. Uh, that would be their motivation right here. <laughs> um, and quite frankly, I would be all for that if it was effective. It's not effective. You know, you just think they're crazy. And... Uh, no one's going to listen to you taking that kind of intense thing and just shoving the Bible in people's faces. And of course, you'll hear people who want you to shove the Bible in people's faces say, if you don't tell them, then they'll go to hell and it'll be your fault. And whoa, whoa, just relax. Okay, God is talking to Ezekiel in these terms because he's speaking to him so clearly, seriously. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Even being a pastor, the Bible says, is a scary thing because they will fall under a heavier judgment than those who do not teach the word of God. Creeps me out. Okay? Hey. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's true. You know, so I mean, just, so to whom much is given much. If God literally speaks you in audible voices, flies you around the room, you see visions and stuff like you're on LSD or whatever, and you don't do what he tells you to do, you, you're going to be in big trouble. So just, I'm just trying to put it in context. If you ever hear anybody take these scriptures and shove them in your face and tell them, that's why you need to go down to the mall and stick gospel tracts in everybody's face. <sighs> that's not what this means. Okay. And again, I'd be all for that if it worked. It doesn't work. And I know I've tried it. <laughs> I have, man. I've done it all. I've knocked on doors and stood on staircases and preached to people walking by and uh, you know I've even <laughs> shame to admit it <laughs> been arrested <laughs> in my earlier stupid days of course listening to the other people who were stupid and pastor stupid and son to us and we all went yeah let's go do it you know be, be, be obnoxious for Jesus oh isn't that wonderful you know wind up in the in jail <laughs> I got some funny stories about jail, though. I'll tell you sometimes. Some, some hilarious stuff. I got strip search once. That's a funny story. I'll tell you about that. Anyway, well, there's something you don't forget. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just trying to put when... You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had someone tell you like that, that you need to be real militant sticking Jesus in people's faces and they'll use scriptures like this and quote these scriptures and why you should because if you don't do it don't go down it's going to be your fault it's like whoa whoa just chill out okay that's not uh, what we're called to do however we are called I mean there's an element of truth in this we are to live the kind of life and have, when we have opportunities to share with people we are to share the gospel with people the good news 
you know, the good news. You're a filthy rotten pig and going to go to hell. Isn't exactly the good news category. Okay? Now, that may be true. The good news is you don't have to do that. Go to hell. You can really know God and God can answer prayers in your life and he doesn't want you to be so miserable and let me pray for you. And that's good news. Somebody say amen. All right. So anyway, the hand of the Lord was upon me there and he said to me, get up and go out to the plain and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain and the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory I had seen by the Kabar River and I fell face down. <laughs> then the spirit came into me as I'm laying face down and raised me to my feet. Whoa! And he spoke to me and said, go shut yourself inside your house and you son of man, they will tie with ropes. You will be bound so you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, though they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Again, if you're in this kind of situation, God's floating you around, you can't talk until God tells you to talk. You better talk when he tells you to talk. Otherwise, chill out a little bit. Uh, so the Lord says, whoever will listen to him, let him listen. And whoever will refuse him, let him refuse him, for they are a rebellious house. All right, now, he starts doing some of these dramatic prophet things that we're talking about. And uh, uh, he's, he starts to symbolize the siege of Jerusalem. And again, some of this is a little confusing. And I, I pointed this out the last time we were together. The time frame. Because, well, Jerusalem, in our mind, Jerusalem has fallen already, right? They've been taken into captivity. So, but it's not really done falling yet. It's like, remember, I showed you it took years for them to lay siege on the city. And they slowly starved them out, which we're going to see get real brutal there. And then they came in with swords. and I mean, so it, it took a long time. They didn't have, you know, the kind of, you know, weaponry we have today. That you can wipe out a city, you know, with a serious bombing campaign. They just had... Sticks and rocks and swords and spears. And it took a while, if you will. So even though he is part of some of the exiles who are now in Babylon, there's still people in Jerusalem who are still going through this hell. And he's being commanded to speak to them and still warn them. Of course, they don't listen and everything just gets very bad. So now, son of man, take a clay tablet. Put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it and erect siege works, works against it, build a ramp to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. And then take an iron pan and place, uh, place, it, as on, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face to it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. And this will be assigned to the house of Israel. So, so this guy, clearly, if you're walking around, you got to think this guy's nuts. Alright? So he takes this big tablet and he draws the city of Jerusalem. And then he has to make all these ramps and stuff up to it. And, chilling, and then take this iron pan. And just, you know, it's like someone's walking by. This guy is like, dee, 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 dee. you know what I'm saying? But he's one of these dramatic prophets who's acting out all the stuff that's, that's going to happen. Then, <laughs> this is really weird. <clears throat> then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. How he does that, I don't know. Uh, you are to bear their sin for a number of days. You will lie on the side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. These guys have been doing this for hundreds of years. Specifically, 390. So, for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the house of 
of Israel. So his job is to lay like this for over a year. Now, I don't know if he just did it during the day. Uh, I, we know he gets to eat and wait till you hear about this. Um, I don't know if he got breaks. I don't know if he had to stay out. That had to really hurt. Or if supernaturally he was able to do it. All we know is that people would, you know, because I, I toss and turn all night long. I can't lay once I was like, So all, all, all I know is they will walk on and, and you come into town and here's Ezekiel and, and he's laying on his left side. And what's he doing? I, I don't know. He's laying on his left side. And, and they go to Kmart. They come back out. And, and he's, what's he doing? He's still on his left side. I don't know what he's doing. So, you know, first few days is weird. But now this is like, you know, 390 days later, the guy's still laying on his left side. Just odd. Thankfully, we're not called to be this odd. <laughs> you think it's odd enough just to say you're a Christian? Yeah, that is odd. But this is like really odd stuff. So he does that for 390 days. All I can think of is, ow. Then after you finish this, God says to him, now lie down again. This time on your right side. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was like, we're at the other side for a while. And, uh, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. And there I have assigned you 40 days. So not so bad for them. So for 40 days, he lays on his right side, which probably confused people. So why'd you flip? And... Uh, and I, I, I presume he was telling people what he was doing. I'm doing this for this, you know, being this dramatic prophet. Oh, I'm laying on here for the sins of, you know, la, 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 la. And I'm sure everybody just thought, a little odd. Then turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you finish the days of your siege. Then take wheat and barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. I have no idea what spelt is. Do you know what a spelt is? It's grain? How do you know that? You eat it? You can still buy spelt? You can actually go to the store and say, I'd like, I'd like, I'd like some spelt, please. Really? That was something that you already spelled. <laughs> well, I spelt it. <laughs> I don't know. So you can, okay, so he's go, go grain and so on. So put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. So this is what you're going to eat while you're doing this. Uh, weigh out 20 shekels, shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set time. So obviously he gets breaks and you can sit up and eat. Also measure out a sixth of a hin of water. You know what a hin of water is? Misspelt. You don't know, okay. I don't know. What is it, a hen? A liter. You're right. No, it's half a liter. I see it's explained on the side here. Uh, of water, drink it at set times. So you want to eat at certain times, uh, drink at certain times. Then eat food as you would eat a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the other people using... This is the fuel that you are to use. Kaka. And not just everyday caca, people caca. And I presume his own caca. I mean, if you're going to have to use caca, I'd use my own and not have to go borrow someone else's. I mean, be, <laughs> a little odd, wouldn't you think? 
you know, dramatic, right? The guy's dramatic, is what I'm saying. So he's laying there, and not bad enough, he's always on his side, but good Lord, what is he cooking with? All right? So that's what God told him. Now, he didn't have to do that. I'll explain in just a minute. Then the Lord said, in this way, people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them out. And then I said, not so, 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 so here he's got a problem. Lay on your side for 309 days. Okay. Be weird in front of these people for all this time. Okay. Eat this weird smell. Okay. Drink just when I tell you to drink. Okay. Uh, but when it came to cooking with his own caca, he had a problem with this one. <laughs> Which I certainly appreciate. So, uh, Lord, uh, I got a problem with the caca. I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I've never eaten anything or found dead or torn by wild animals, which they weren't supposed to eat. You know, they were very meticulous in how they ate and what they ate. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. And what he's really getting around to is I got a problem with the caca. So the Lord says, okay, very well. I will let you bake your bread over cow caca (laughs) instead of human caca. And he was okay with that. (laughs) So he still had to cook with caca, but at least it wasn't his own caca. Then he said to me, son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. And the people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water with despair. So all of this was to point out the uh, rationing of food that was going to kick in over this siege. Uh, you'd think they could just say it, but he had to act it out for some reason. It was just These guys were very dramatic. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, they will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Um, now, son, chapter 5, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor and shave your head and beard. <sighs> then set, take a set of scales and divide up the hair. And when the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. And then take a third and strike it with a sword all around the city. I presume it's the city that he drew out. And scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with a drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Now this represents the few people who will survive all of this. He's, he's part of this remnant. The Bible refers to them as, as a few strands of hair. God saved them lest the entire nation should be decimated. Again, take a few of these and throw them up into the fire and burn them up. The fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you, which is really what fried God so much. First of all, he sent them in to the promised land, this land he promised them, and he told them in the beginning. He said, look, don't be arrogant about this. I'm not sending you to this land because you're so good. I'm sending you in because they're so bad. These were wicked people. And what he's arguing here is you have become more wicked than the people you replaced. You can't, and they were surrounded by heathen nations who knew nothing 
about God's laws and decency and morality. These were extremely violent cultures. And he says, you haven't even conformed to the standards of those nations. That's how bad it got. Oftentimes it doesn't really tell us. It just says that the Lord was angry because they went astray. What does that mean? Cats run astray. You know, I mean, how intense are we? We're talking, it really got incomprehensibly bad. And when this judgment came, it wasn't because God was mean. These people, and these were people of faith, had become so wicked, they were among some of the most wicked nations on the face of the earth. And this is thousands of years ago. Again, more wicked after knowing God, and we're talking the Ten Commandments and all the rules of God and Moses and all this stuff and the coming, the children of Israel and God doing all these incredible things for them, then they corrupted themselves to this point. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and and never will do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children. Children will eat their fathers. We saw this before in one of the other uh, accounts of a siege where, do you remember the two ladies were starving, so they decided to eat their babies. So we'll eat your baby today, and then, or I'll eat my baby today, and then we'll eat your baby tomorrow. So they ate her baby today, and then tomorrow she was hiding the baby, and she was mad. So she goes to the king and says, it's not fair, it's turn to eat her baby. Of course, the king was mortified by this and just starts crying out, and God finally had mercy on them. But because when these sieges came in, it got nasty. Anyway, he says, Your fathers will eat their children, the children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you, I will scatter all your survivors to the wind. Therefore, surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. Hence the analogy of the third of the hair. Um, a third will fall by the sword outside your walls. Hence him springing it and going around with a knife and sword hitting around. Uh, and a third of your people will die. Oh, I'm sorry. And a third I will scatter to the winds. That's why he said throw it up in the air. And pursue with a drawn sword. In my anger, or then my anger will cease, he says, and my wrath against them will subside. I will be avenged, and when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with sitting rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. And we'll see this when uh, we see them, God bringing them back 70-some years later, and, uh, and they start to rebuild the city, how the nations mocked them and ridiculed them, and everything God had said had come to pass. But he did restore them, and it's an amazing thing. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you, cut off your food supply. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and, will, and I will bring the sword against you, I the Lord have spoken. Wow. Okay, so um, next Wednesday we'll pick it up from there and we'll start, uh, we'll speed it up a little bit. We won't read every single thing here. A um, couple of the other visions and stuff like that. Uh, then I do want to show you when he gets to this allegory of an unfaithful Jerusalem. 
and how sexual, shockingly so, the, the, the references are through this. And uh, once we pretty much get through that, then he just starts speaking judgment on everybody, <laughs> everything, and oh, he just gets, wow, one nation after another. Uh, and then we'll get into Daniel, which is pretty fascinating, a book in the Old Testament. Very, very interesting stuff there, and that starts talking about prophecy of the end days and stuff. We'll have fun with that. So, okay, so that's enough for tonight, and we'll pick it up again next Wednesday.